Are you looking for a way to save a little money? What about getting your subscriptions under control? If so, then I've got just the solution for you. Rocket Money. With the help of Rocket Money, I was able to find a subscription that I completely forgot to cancel before the free trial was up. I'm sure you've all been there. And Rocket Money can help me cancel it. Between streaming platforms, apps, delivery services, and even parenting and kids subscriptions, it's hard to keep track of exactly what you're spending and how much it all adds up to each and every month. Not to mention the fact that it seems every single day one of those subscriptions suddenly jumps up in price. Rocket Money alerts you when this happens so you're never caught unawares. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With them, I can see clearly what my monthly spending is and how it compares to the month before, making saving money and taking control over my finances so much easier. They'll also try to negotiate lowering your bills up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll even deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. That's rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. Rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. Today's podcast is brought to you by newspapers.com, the ultimate destination for exploring the mysteries of the past. If you're fascinated by true crime, get ready to dive into the stories that made headlines. Newspapers.com offers a billion pages of historical newspapers from the U.S. and beyond, and you can search the entire collection in seconds. Their vast newspaper collection is a goldmine for eyewitness accounts, crime scene photos, news reports, and more. Whether you're interested in famous crimes or long-forgotten cases, Newspapers.com gives you a front-row seat to more than 300 years of history. For our listeners, Newspapers.com has a special offer. Use the code CUPOFMURDER for an exclusive 20% discount on your subscription. That's promo code CUPOFMURDER at Newspapers.com. Sign up today and start unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. Some cases can leave a lasting impression in the area where it occurred that can last for decades. On July 14, 1897, a young woman was born whose murder and the trial that followed will leave a lasting impression on a village in England that lasts to this day. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Annie Bella Wright, Bella to everyone that knew her, was born on July 14, 1897 to two hardworking parents and eventually had six younger siblings. When she was seven years old, she began her education in a nearby village. Her start date delayed so she could help her mother with housework and babies. And she graduated in 1910, taking a job with a local wealthy family as their parlor maid. Four years later, war in Britain thrust women on a new course of life, and many joined the workforce to fill vacated positions and help with the war effort in the only way allowed. Bella was one of these women. At the age of 19, she began her work in a factory. 
and by the age of 21, was working in the small rural village of Stoughton in Leicestershire, England, biking back and forth daily from her family cottage three miles away. On July 5th, 1919, Bella had the day off and woke up later than she usually did. She spent her morning writing letters to friends and planned on heading to her uncle's home in the nearby village of Galby to see her cousin, his wife, and their new baby. At around 6 p.m., she wheeled her bicycle, the one everyone saw her driving back and forth to her job almost daily, out onto the road and began her ride to Evington Post Office to drop off her letters on the way to her uncle's home. On the way there, she ran into a Mrs. Powers, and after a chat, she offered to take the letters to the post office for Bella. She obliged and handed over the post and some money. It was at that point that Bella realized the sky had gone that murky gray color that signifies incoming rain, and decided to double back to home and get a coat. She figured it was better to be late to her visit, than get soaked in the process. Back on track and at her uncle's by 7.25 p.m., he greeted her and let her inside. A short while later, George Measures walked outside of his cabin door to accept a grocery delivery, and when he did, he noticed a young man perched on a green bicycle. He was wearing a flat cap pulled down to obscure his face, and unable to recognize him, George asked the grocer if they knew who the mystery rider was. They said that they didn't know his name, but that they saw his niece Bella riding into Galby with him and assumed that the pair were together. Now, while George Measures didn't know who he was, because of the gift of history and storytelling, we do. Ronald Vivian Light, born October 19th, 1885, was a troubled boy from the beginning. Expelled from school when he was just 19 for, quote, lifting a little girl's clothes over her head, Ronald got himself into trouble throughout his young life and, according to the testimonies, was in pretty hot water when he attempted to seduce a 15-year-old when he was in his 30s and had, quote, improper conduct with an 8-year-old girl. Regardless, he was able to graduate and gain employment as a droughtsman at the Midland Railway in 1906 a job he would be fired from in 1914 after they suspected him of setting fire to a cupboard and drawing indecent graffiti in the bathroom. In May of 1910, Ronald bought a green BSA folding bike in Derby, a bike that was uncommon, extremely distinctive, and most everyone knew belonged to him. It was around this time that he became a member of the Royal Engineers, and shortly thereafter, the same war that sent Bella into the workforce sent Ronald on to the front lines, commissioned as a second lieutenant in February of 1915 and deployed to the Western Front. Unfortunately, his time in the war wouldn't last long, and in 1917, he was court-martialed for forging move orders and, after three years of active service, was classified as suffering from severe shell shock and partial deafness and sent back to England for psychiatric treatment. After a few stints in several army hospitals, he was back with his mother where he was officially demobilized in 1919, which is how he found himself directly in Bella's path in July of that year. George Measures wasn't exactly pleased that his niece was keeping company with an older man, especially since, as far as her family was concerned, she was engaged to a childhood friend named Archie Ward, who was off serving in a Navy ship. 
Bella, despite not seeing her relationship with Archie as anything more than friends, assured her uncle that she had no idea who the man was, but that she had simply helped him with directions, and the pair had a casual conversation while they rode together for a bit. He begrudgingly accepted her story, but the mystery man, Ronald, continued to hang out outside of the cottage. Bella got up later to head home, but when told that he was still waiting for her, she decided to stay a bit longer and wait him out. At around 7.30 p.m., her cousin's husband went outside and assured both Bella and his father-in-law that the stranger must have left. And feeling a sense of relief, Bella was allowed to get on her bike and head back home. As Bella pedaled her bike onto the road, she saw the familiar sight of a green bicycle coasting down the hill towards her saying, You've been a long time. I thought you'd gone the other way. Of course, when this story was told from Ronald's perspective, things differed slightly. He agreed with Bella's conclusion that they met completely by chance. But in his version of events, he happened upon the girl at a crossroads and that she flagged him down to help her with a loose freewheel on her bike, which is likely true considering she asked her cousin's husband to help with this exact issue just before riding off into the night. He didn't have the tool necessary to help her out, but did what he could to try and resolve the issue. After a brief conversation, Ronald Light offered to accompany Bella to her uncle's nearby cottage. Now, up until this point, their stories seemed to match up pretty well. Ronald even admitted to sticking around the cottage and greeting her when she started her journey home at 8.30 at night. But according to his version, it was shortly after this greeting that the pair reached a junction and bid goodbye as their routes went in opposite directions. She headed left towards home and he went back to Leicester. Though the stories differed, one fact remained the same. About 30 minutes after riding away from George Measure's cottage, Bella Wright's body was found by a farmer on Gardy Road, lying beside her bicycle. Her face was completely bloodied, and she had deep gouge marks on her cheeks and jaw. Assuming she may have been run off the road by a passing motorist, the farmer who found her assumed she had fallen off her bike and sustained the injuries from her fall. He went to nearby Great Glen and reported his findings to a constable, Alfred Hall, who then phoned for Dr. Williams. The trio of men arrived at the crime scene where the doctor instructed the men to move Bella's body to a nearby unaccompanied house on the farmer's land. While Dr. Williams worked to find the cause of death via candlelight, Constable Hall took notes of the crime scene. He described smears of blood on the top bar of a field gate, but found no human footprints on either side of that gate. Not agreeing with the assumptions that she had been run off the road, Constable Hall began a thorough look through the grassy area in which her body was found. That's when he made an extremely important discovery that changed the whole course of this investigation, a 455 caliber bullet just 17 feet from where Bella's body was found. With a new theory brewing in his head, he went to the house where Bella's body was still being examined, washed off the blood from her face, and found a single entry wound beneath her left eye. He told the doctor about his discovery, and with the help of another professional, a postmortem was performed and confirmed what the constable had suspected, that the young girl had been shot once beneath her left eye from a distance of about six to seven feet, the bullet exiting the back of her skull and causing her immediate death. It wasn't long before relatives identified the body as Bella Wright, and a full investigation into her murder began. 
Of course, almost immediately, those who she visited the day that she was murdered brought up the mystery man on the green bicycle. Determining that she and this companion were the only people in the vicinity of Garty Tree Road that night, figured they had a pretty good idea of who was responsible for her murder. So, they issued appeals in both local and national press for this man with a green bicycle to come forward and help with the investigation. And, unsurprisingly, no one came forward. So, they worked with the only real clue that they had, the color and type of bicycle the mystery rider had. After checking with all local sellers and repairmen, on July 10th, 1919, a Leicestershire man came forward saying that, on the day before the murder, he repaired a bike matching their description. In fact, the rider told him that he had intentions of going for, quote, a ride in the country on that very day. Now, while all of this was happening, Ronald Light claimed that he found out for the first time about Bella's murder from a news article on July 8th. Realizing the predicament he was now in, he decided to remove his bike from where he normally kept it to the attic, later saying the only real reason he didn't come forward was because he didn't want to worry his ailing mother. Months passed and the case started to slow down, but in October of 1919, Ronald, for whatever reason, decided to remove the bike from its attic hiding place, file off the serial numbers, dismantle it, and throw the only real evidence connecting him to Bella's murder off the Upperton Road Bridge, an act witnessed by a man named Samuel Holland, who had been walking to his night shift at a nearby mill. On February 23, 1920, a man guiding a horse-drawn barge along the river sore, snagged a bicycle frame on his tow rope. When he pulled it out, he realized that the distinct green color matched all of those news articles and contacted the police, who then decided to drag the entire canal. All of the pieces were found, and after checking out the faint serial numbers that they could still see, connected the disposed bike with Ronald Vivian Light. Ronald, who at this point was a 33-year-old mathematics teacher who had just started at Dean Close School two months ago, was arrested on March 4th, 1920, and charged with the murder of Annie Bella Wright. He, of course, denied having ever been near Galby on July 5th and claimed that he had no idea who Bella was, nor had he ever owned a green bicycle. Of course, this last part was proven untrue when police linked him through the serial number and the rest of the story began to fall apart when eyewitnesses all identified him as the man they saw riding with Bella, including her uncle, who got a very good look at him as he waited outside of his cottage, as did the bicycle repairman. As police began questioning those who knew Ronald Light, his mother's maid came forward saying that on the night of July 5th, he had not returned home until about 10 p.m., claiming his bike had broken down and he had to push it home. He also sold or destroyed all of the clothing he'd been wearing that night. And on March 19th, the drained canal reaped some more damning evidence when the Army pistol holster, the one issued to Ronald when he served, and a dozen or so 455 caliber bullets were found in the same general area as the pieces of the green bicycle. The bullets, of course, matched the ones found at Bella's crime scene, leaving very little doubt that Ronald Light was their man. The Green Bicycle case, as it came to be called, began its trial on June 8, 1920, with the prosecution contending that Ronald Light, after Bella fled from him and headed south, 
took an alternative route to ambush the young girl, that he laid in wait at the gate on Gartree Road and shot her before fleeing the scene. An idea supported by the eyewitnesses who saw the pair together and saw Ronald leaving with Bella on her ride home, as well as the physical evidence found in the river sore. They also claimed that, once in custody, Ronald told a number of lies until he was confronted with proof of his inconsistencies, something someone who was innocent would more than likely not feel the need to do. Testifying against Ronald were two young girls, Muriel Nunny, 14, and Valeria Caven, 12, who said that approximately three hours before Ronald met Bella Wright, he had been pestering them as they rode their bicycles on the same road that Bella's body was later found. All of this seemed pretty hard to dispute, but his legal counsel advised Ronald to get on the stand and give his own version of the events. He admitted to lying to police, admitted to virtually everything the witnesses testified, but denied the fact that he owned the gun used to shoot Bella Wright, and of course, the murder itself, maintaining that the pair parted ways at a junction close to King's Norton. Upon cross-examination, he admitted that the holster, bullets, and bicycle were his, and that they were disposed of in an act of sheer panic, and not guilt. He said that as a serviceman, he did own the service weapon at some point, but maintained that he had left it behind in a casualty clearing station in France in 1918, though he did still keep the holster. Throughout the whole trial, Ronald's stories remained the same. He was well-spoken, never once contradicted himself, making it difficult to disprove any of the details that he provided. Between that complete lack of motive and the defense's theories that Bella was killed by a stray shot fired from a distance, the jury was going to have a hard time making up their minds. Which is why on June 11th, 1920, after three hours of deliberation, Ronald Vivian Light was found not guilty and acquitted of the charges against him. Spectators cheered when the verdict was read. He lived out the rest of his life in relative seclusion until his death on May 15, 1975, when he was 89 years old. Over the years, many have argued over the results of the Green Bicycle case. Some, like author Herbert R. Wakefield, who wrote a book about the case, contends that the jury got it right and that Ronald was not guilty and Bella was killed by an errant bullet from a stranger. Whereas author Christine Wendy East says in her book on the subject that he was guilty and that class structure and sympathy played a role in the juror's decision. Some say that Ronald was responsible for shooting Bella, but that it was an accident, that he was showing off his revolver to a girl that he liked and inadvertently discharged the weapon. Others say she was killed by another dangerous man prowling on the back roads looking for a victim. Regardless of the how, a young girl still lost her life, and what proceeded after was one of the UK's most controversial murder cases of the 20th century, a case described as, quote, the most fascinating murder mystery of the century. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on July 15th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.